Hello and welcome to the Atlantic Fellows Podcast. I'm Fanula Sweeney. The Atlantic Fellowship Program works with a diverse community of leaders around the world with a common commitment to fairer, healthier, more inclusive societies. Through its seven programs focused on equity in healthcare, socioeconomic equity, and racial equity, the Atlantic Fellowships offer committed leaders across the globe an opportunity to gain new perspectives and new colleagues while strengthening their competence and confidence in their work for change. In each podcast, I'll be speaking to an Atlantic Fellow about their work and ambitions for a more just world. I'm joined by Lina Chandra, Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity in Southeast Asia. Lina is a founder and trustee of Rachel House, the first paediatric palliative care service in Indonesia, which provides home-based palliative care for children of marginalised communities. I spoke to Lina at Rhodes House in Oxford, England, where the Atlantic Institute is based. I first asked her what inspired her to found Rachel House. Hi, Finula. Rachel House was established in 2006 after my friend Rachel died. When Rachel was dying and during the last days, I realized how much care and how much funding is required when someone is in his or her final stages of cancer. After Rachel died, I decided to find out for myself what happens to people who have no means. When I walked through the wards in Indonesia and Thailand, in Indonesia in particular, I saw children screaming in pain. I asked the doctor who was taking me through the ward, why are these children screaming in pain? And she said, painkillers are expensive. It's about $10 a pop. As an ex-investment banker, I said to myself, well, that's simple. That's doable. So I decided then to establish a 60-bed hospice. That was the intention, where children can come, spend their last days, and parents can accompany their children, spend the final days with the child. Food would be available. For a lot of these families, that meant a lot because they don't have to work for those days and they will be able to afford what they need. How did you go about setting up Rachel House? Initially, you purchase a piece of land, you have the architects and everyone coming to draw up the plans. But when I realized when we hired our first team to pilot the hospice, it's not the building, it's the care. And that was when I realized that in Indonesia, doctors are not trained to look at pain. Doctors are trained to cure, to treat, but not to look at pain. In fact, Three years ago, when we launched a program to train 12 public hospitals in Indonesia in palliative care, the most respected oncologist in town told the journalists that if you want our doctors to treat pain and to see pain and treat pain, then you have to eliminate all the doctors my generation because the doctors are trained to treat and to cure. And they see pain as just part and parcel towards curative treatment. Does that say something about the Indonesian psyche or it was just how it was taught? They were taught that if you treat pain, then you would mask the cause of pain. And therefore, you wouldn't be able to know what's the source of that pain. Has that changed in recent years? Slowly. Morphine is beginning to be used in a cancer hospital, at least in Jakarta, rarely beyond Jakarta. I realized that this is not so unusual in many countries in the beginning of the journey of palliative care. Many of the countries have gone through the same journey. We assume that doctors are trained to treat pain, but really, that's an assumption. So these children were left to suffer in pain yes. in their final weeks yes. and days, not because of any pejorative attitude, no. but the mindset at the time was 
painkillers are expensive and we only ever treat the cause. Yes, and pain is part and parcel towards curative treatment. There's nothing to do. Talk to me about when the first children began to come to the Rachel House. It took us a while because the doctors were rejecting the idea of palliative care. In a medical world, palliative care is seen as an admission of failure, that your patient is dying. So when we approach some of the doctors, most of them don't understand what palliative care is, and those who know the terminology say, there's no way, we will fight till the end. So initially I did what, as a business person, I knew how to do. We went through the nurses, we sent our nurses into the hospital to speak to the nurses and explain what palliative care is all about. The nurses start telling the parents, and the parents started talking to us. Then the nurses start telling us about the patients who really need our help. And the doctors in the ward said, if these patients want to go to Rachel House, then they have to opt to go to Rachel House themselves, and it will not be on referral basis. So initially it was tough. And when we started having our first patients coming, we had an inpatient hospice at that time. It was a three-bedder. Patient's family used to ask us, what is it? Do you have doctors? Do you have nurses? Will there be people looking after us? Children used to ask us, will there be injections? If there are injections, then we won't come. It was difficult for us because we had to get parents to understand what we were offering. We had to convince children that there are toys and there are no injections. Because they didn't want the pain. Once you've gone through chemotherapy for two to three years and treatment, you just want to go home. And that was when it became really clear to us that building a 60-bed hospice was not going to be a solution for the community that we're going to be looking after. A lot of the children, even after they saw our ward filled with flowers in the middle of a garden and with lots of toys, they still wanted to go home. I went to some of these children's homes. They were the simplest homes with dirt floor, but they wanted to be home because that's where their grandmothers are. That's where the familiar smell of food, even when they could no longer eat. That was home. Yeah, that was home. Their friends were running in through the doors. They had people they knew. That was home. So how did you set about trying to help those wishes come true? There is a difference between convincing your donors and convincing your team. Even for me, I saw only structure as a solution. I saw buildings. We had only a three-bedder, and it was remaining empty for most of the time. We had one patient, we had two patients, and our nurses said, the patients are at home. We need to go to their home. So in between, they used to hop on their motorbikes, and they would go out and look after the patients at home. Eventually, we sat down, and we did a vote. I tried to convince all the nurses, home care is the most difficult task. You have to go in the heat, on the motorbikes, to the most dangerous areas, because we were looking after children with HIV, including cancer, but HIV most of the time in those days in the drug-ridden areas. So I had all of these warnings for the nurses, and then I said, okay, now we put it out to vote. There were eight of them and one of me. Everyone put out their hands for home care, and I was the only one who put out my hands for a structure. So I was voted out, and I'm grateful today that at least I agreed to that. We had to go about unwinding the process of building. Luckily, we had only the land to sell and the drawings to put aside. Then we had to explain to the donors, and that was actually a more difficult process. Why you were moving to home care? Yeah, because I think, like me, a lot of the community that I had approached I had grown accustomed to seeing building as the fruits of donation, something that you can actually associate your money with. Maybe also, how could a poor person not want to move to a much more comfortable place to die? I didn't know, but 
the smell of home and the comfort of friends coming in. That's what you want. You want to be at home. How did you then convince the donors that this was the way to go? In the business world, we understand the process of communication, the importance of communication, that at every stage of your business and development, you report. If there is a change of course, you always make sure that your investors are kept informed. In a nonprofit world, I thought if I was struggling, I had to continue. I didn't know where we were heading. I knew that we were trying to find a business model that worked in the Indonesian context. We are the first palliative care and we are the first home care in Indonesia. Serving the poorest, definitely nobody else had gone down that road. So initially it was, how do I communicate this? Is this a failure or is this just trying to navigate and find your way so that you are serving the community that you want with the right product? Today, looking back, I think I should have communicated better and more promptly. I think today I would tell people, Whatever you do, even if in the midst of your own confusion, make sure that you communicate. I think we delayed the communication until we thought we had found a way. People have said to me, in a nonprofit world, you're not allowed to fail. Change, of course, is really not an option. And I think perhaps today I've learned better in a sense that changing course is not a failure, but it's just targeting your product better. So you managed to persuade the donors can you tell us a bit about the difference to a child that's made being able to spend their final days at home? There must be so many stories of lives that have been touched and families who've been able to protect as much as they can their little one before they pass. There was a child who was in a cancer hospital for a long time. His name is Arnef. He had neuroblastoma and he was sent home to die. The oncologist told us he'll probably have another week or 10 days. He was very sick. As soon as you got home, he insisted that he wanted to go to school. Even though he could hardly walk, I think the mother was beautiful. She gave in to Arnef and took him to school every day. Our nurse had to struggle and tailor our time to his time because he insisted on going back to school all the time until there came a day when he found it too difficult to get to school. And then school came to him. We started bringing some of his teachers, some of his friends. Our nurses went to school to explain to the children what it meant yeah, for Arnev yeah. to have them. That's amazing. I know. Yeah. I think for Arnev, it meant that there were people who actually championed him. There were people who advocated for him. There was a lot of pain in the end. And our nurses made possible for him to sit up and not have the wounds where the coccyx pressure is. At each point of the way, pain was always alleviated to allow him to still play as a boy and to still be boisterous as he should be. Till this day, we always remember him because he was one of our earliest patients at home. And he lived longer than a week? He lived for three months. He even managed to request one of his favorite actors to come to him. He celebrated his, I think, eighth birthday before he died. Neuroblastoma for him was a really, really painful journey. And each part of the way, mm. our nurses popped in. One of our nurses, her own son is the same age as Arnev, and she just couldn't handle it because yeah, Arnev was going through place. so much pain. But our other nurse stepped in and made sure that Arnev was always looked after. Let me ask you then what drew you, if we can switch gears, to the fellowship, to the equity initiative, presumably your experiences and seeing what you could achieve with Rachel House and palliative care for children and influence that? 
In 2016, when I applied for the fellowship, it was when I stepped down in my day-to-day role with Rachel House. It was the 10th year and we were transitioning to the first professional CEO. I knew then that my journey with Rachel House was only giving me a glimpse of the suffering that people have to go through when there is no available healthcare. And I knew that there's a bigger role to play. I needed to learn how I can take myself to a much larger platform, learn the language of health equity to fight in this world and transform healthcare so that we can actually bring about compassionate and excellent healthcare to all. I've seen through my work in Indonesia, I was serving for the transition government of President Jokowi when I looked at how government built facilities, but often it's the poorest who found it hard to get transportation to that last mile to access healthcare. And so it became really important for me to be part of this fellowship, to learn and to have access to a global platform to see how I can achieve this next part of my mission. So far, what has been your experience of the fellowship on a personal level and also helping you achieve those goals? The fellowship has expanded my mind. It's given me incredible access to the brightest minds in healthcare. But also the most important part for me is the compassionate people around the world who speak the same language about equitable access and the need to bring that. I've also met incredible people in Harvard who not only look at healthcare, but also look at the The spiritual spiritual part of healthcare. We visited a school of divinity in Harvard. We've come across incredible people, brave, courageous people in India, in the Philippines, who speak out for the poorest community. Being here in Oxford this weekend to meet so many incredible minds. This, of course, is the Rhodes Venture Forum, which is taking place at Rhodes House this weekend as part of the Atlantic Fellowship, which is an extension of the Equity Initiative. Has the Atlantic Fellowship broadened your horizons? If I just look back and see the amazing exposure that I've been given to meet the greatest thinkers of the world, the people who have guided me in my own study towards formulating my ideas towards my next venture, I think it is phenomenal. More importantly, even just learning from Chuck Finney's own journey to giving, the humility and the incredible resources that he's put behind Cuba, seeding the Cuba healthcare and the Vietnam healthcare. For me, It's been humbling to learn that there is someone like that who has gone through this journey. That's wonderful, Lina. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much. That was Lina Chandra, an Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity in Southeast Asia. For more information, you can visit www.equityinitiative.org or www.atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to an Atlantic Fellows podcast.